Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 96. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed and inspirational author, Ginny Sassaman. Ginny, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. And so we, you know, just doing some research, looking at, you have basically, uh, an amazing book that you published last year. It was like around last July or, or so, correct? Yes, I think the book launch was like one year ago today. Right. I might have been just about one year. Yeah, July 29th, I think. So mm -hmm. so happy birthday, huh? Happy Thank anniversary. You. I happy have book it here birthday. with me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. And you said, so I mean, so, you know, doing, you know, just looking at it a bit and everything like this is like, so your book itself basically is, um, it's preaching happiness, creating a just and joyful world. Yes. And you have quite a story based off of how you got about writing this. And this is basically, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a book that's been in your head. You've been wanting to write since, um, you know, well on, way back in the early, like uh, 2000, I think it's a 2011 or 2012, if I remember. Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. It's been floating around in one format or another for quite a while. Right. And you kind of got started with the, uh, the so like, you know, and, and you'll be able to talk to us a bit about this. Well, innovative to most, but for those that study it, know about it, about the whole gross national happiness yes. uh, perspective. So do you want to kind of give people a bit of a background uh, about, you know, you know, who you are and how you sat down and started writing this book? Um. Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've had a variety of careers, um, but I think that uh, who I am, I have always, always really been um, interested in and passionate about and active in social justice causes. Mm -hmm. And really my whole life, including as a child, really wanting to make the world a better place, really wanting to make the world a more fair place. Mm. Um, at the same time, I uh, uh, have always been a writer. So I've done a lot of, you know, I've marched in the streets quite a bit. I've been an artist. I've worked for nonprofit groups. Um, I worked in, uh, I lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for a good number of years. And I worked um, especially for the group Common Cause, which was a, a, a tremendous experience, a wonderful experience. But I think at heart, I'm a writer. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll say a creator because I am also an artist. I just like to create. But I think <laughs> words are my strongest tool. Um, I think both in writing and um, I can sometimes do a pretty good job from the pulpit or other places in communicating ideas orally as well. Right. So I was in D.C. Then I was a full-time artist for about 13 years. Then um, that didn't seem to have enough meaning for me anymore. And I ended up going to... Uh, the sadly defunct 
Woodbury College in Montpelier mm -hmm. to get a master's in mediation and applied conflict studies. Okay. But as soon as I finished my master's, I picked up a book called um, Stumbling on Happiness, which really describes my life from that point on. <laughs> I stumbled on happiness and happiness became my calling. Shortly thereafter, I picked up another book called The Geography of Bliss. The Geography of Bliss is an amazing book, nonfiction. These are both nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, and the book describes the countries that um, are, according to various data sources, rank as the happiest countries in the world. And one of those countries was Bhutan. And I was reading the book and read for the first time about this concept of gross national happiness. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. I thought this totally makes sense. Again, given, you know, my activism and my social justice concerns, my concerns about the environment, my concerns um, about income inequality uh, and how I felt like the drive for more and more money seemed to be like ruining the healthcare system and ruining the educational system and all these things. Um, and here is gross national happiness as an alternative. Uh, for those who don't know, the idea behind gross national happiness is it's a much more holistic right. and um, expansive way of measuring and encouraging success for systems like any government or a business. But it, you can also use it as a personal tool um, and how we think about measuring success and well-being in our own lives. And I think it's a huge, huge problem in our country and many others that we kind of define, we collectively define success in more monetary and materialistic terms. So you'll hear on the radio all the time, the GDP is up, the GDP is down. But you know what, if you really examine that, that tells you nothing about how well the people are doing or how well the environment is doing. It means nothing. All the GDP measures is the exchange of goods and services. And, um, you know, the GDP undoubtedly got a huge boost out of Jeff Bezos going up into space. Hmm. But I'm not sure how that contributed to the well-being of everybody else. <laughs> You know, it's it's just a false measure. Right. So the gross national happiness uh, measurement and system says, what is it that really creates the optimal systems for well-being for as many people as possible and the animals and future generations? You know, no government can make people happy or should, but it's creating the systems that support that. So if we, you know, if you think about it in terms of your own personal life, mm. you might have a measure that you use every day. Like I do a pedometer, 10,000 steps. So that's very concrete and it's kind of fun. But that doesn't tell me, did I get enough sleep? Am I eating well? 
How are my relationships? You know, am I, am I spending enough time in nature? I mean, there are many, many different things which contribute to an individual's genuine well-being. Mm -hmm. And similarly, there are many, many different things that contribute to a collective systems well-being. So I got super excited about gross national happiness and ended up being one of the co-founders of Gross National Happiness USA. Um, and am now on the, I'm a past president and I'm now on the advisory board. But then I also started studying personal happiness. And, um, you know, it just became my life's work to teach people about these options, that we can change the way governments measure success and that we, which will therefore change how we behave as governments. Mm -hmm. We can change how we as individuals measure success so that we can live really much happier lives. And just, I'll just say one other quick thing, because I know I can just go on and on and on and talk and talk and talk. Um, and I already forgot what I was going to say. I know, I know. Um, people think that in 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 um, rough times in particular, which we're in, mm. um, that it's really selfish to focus on your own happiness and your own well-being. I mean, like, how can I worry about my happiness, you know, when these fires are burning out of control and um, COVID numbers are going back up and et cetera, mm. all the bad stuff. But the truth is that, that the more we cultivate our overall well-being, our happiness, we become more thriving individuals. We are much better able to do whatever the work is that we are trying to do. You know, whether it's raising children or, um, you know, trying to solve a pipeline, whatever it is, when we can come from a place of the greatest positivity within ourselves, we have the tools. Right. We do a much better job of helping the rest of the world. So that is really why I care about happiness. I care about happiness. I mean, it's nice. I like to be as happy as possible. But I care about happiness because I think it's the best tool we have to save our planet, right. and create a better world for our children. And you, and you, as you mentioned, it's like, you know, you're talking about like the GDP as compared yes. as it is like, do you have, uh, do you see this when people ask you about gross national happiness where um, the GDP could say, well, that's kind of, you know, that that's kind of like, like objective where happiness is subjective. How would you measure happiness? What, what would you say to, to something like that? You know, that's a really great question. And because yeah. I think that the reason the GDP, one reason the GDP is so popular, yeah. you know, it was never meant to serve this purpose. Right. The person who kind of created it never meant it as an overall well-being measurement. That's not what it's for, but it's easy to measure. Mm. It's right. easy to measure. Um, and and so it's like, well, the GDP's up. That must be good, right? <laughs> you know, 10,000 steps, that I can measure. Yeah, That's easier to measure than what is the quality of my relationships with other people. Right. Um, 
But you know what? There's been an awful lot of work done on subjective measurements of well-being, and they hold up to scrutiny. Right. They hold up to scrutiny. And as a result, of, at the very least, of all of these different measurements of subjective well-being, we really know what it is that systems can do to support greater well-being of the people. Right. It's it's not it's not a mystery. Right. Um, so one of the things that's shown up in a lot of measurements in the United States, but not just the United States, pandemic of loneliness. Mm. It's a lot of loneliness, including in Vermont. It's yeah. a lot of loneliness, um, and a lot of loneliness in Britain. And Britain responded to this loneliness by creating like, a ministry of loneliness. Oh, wow. To help, um, you know, come up with programs and systems to help people because loneliness is terrible for people's health. Right. You know, if you want to go back to dollars and cents, it puts a strain on the economy when people are lonely. Right. So uh, we don't need to have objective measures. Subjective works well as well. Right. And that reminds me to like, too, it's like, you know, talking to a disability advocate, they say the only disability is loneliness is the only disability. So, yeah, yeah. and there's so much of it. It's very sad. Yeah. And so do you have so, you know, you know, one thing as, you know, time stamping this conversation is like where we're at now with, you know, in, in the midst of the pandemic with vaccines rolling out. And, uh, you know, someone was telling was talking to me about the fact that you know, thinking about the pandemic as a slow moving hurricane that has come through and the resulting destruction left behind is, is um, in the wake is the a mental health crisis. Cause we've all been in the shared trauma. Uh, are you, are you, there's, is there a sense of optimism that now that it's that happiness in, in people's own, you know, mental health seems to be on the forefront of a stage that has never been, has never really seen this level of, 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 um, what's the word of scrutiny or advocate advocacy for, for happiness now that you're seeing it on this side of things? Yes. Well, I'm, um, always optimistic <laughs> <laughs> or almost always optimistic. Um, but you know, I honestly, Barney, I hadn't thought of it in the terms, the way you're describing right now. Uh, but I do think it's true. I do think the moment is ripe. Yeah. Um, to advocate for ways for us to be happier individually and collectively. And, and I think the pandemic showed us some of those things. Right. I think the pandemic certainly highlighted the value of um, relationships um, uh, and overall health and education. Um, I think that from the pandemic, People uh, learned a lot about kindness mm. and being good to one another, which is one of, one of my, definitely one of my favorite happiness tools. You know, when you are kind to other people, you also feel better. Right. It's a yeah. wonderful, it's wonderful. Kindness right. is just wonderful. Um, you know, a lot of these are like soft values or soft qualities that 
don't always get the attention they should in like mainstream media, which is going to focus on things like, oh, the infrastructure bill passed today or people win the gold medal or, you, you know, right. not the soft things, which really are the biggest parts of our day to day lives. And so I do think the pandemic shined a light on that, on, on, um, on the importance of love and the importance of kindness and caring and gratitude. It reminds me about like um, that it, it, what you're talking about too reminds me of that, that fame was that, that uh, Mr. Rogers quote, oh, quote where he yeah. said, uh, um, when you see something scary in the news, um, look for the, for the helpers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Fred Rogers, <laughs> he was a saint. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Honestly, he was really, he was an embodiment of um, someone living a really a good, happy life for himself yeah. and others. Right. And how do you recommend to, because you were talking in a previous interview, you were talking about that it's, it's, there's almost to a point where you have to balance, in order to be happy, you have to compare it to being sad, right? Is that part of the things that you're talking about too? Is like, in order to experience happiness, you have to, because I think you're talking about it in your book one time, like it when, uh, last year when you said that. Yes. Yeah. And not, not that you have to balance. We don't have to be. No. Definitely right. not. Right. Um, but, but living a, a, a life that is as, is as thriving. And here's how I define happiness. Actually, I define happiness as a greater sense of, um, peacefulness and inner contentment, um, as well as thriving um, and a much greater propensity for positive emotions. <coughs> but that doesn't mean there won't be plenty of negative emotions too. It's not about being in denial. Right. Um, that's a recipe for disaster, you know, pretending to be happy when you're not. Right. Um, so sadness is absolutely a part of life right. and loss um, and anger. You know, the, these are all part of the human experience. Um, but it's been my experience that having cultivated these happiness skills in myself as much as possible, and I can talk about how I do that, um, but it helps me bounce back faster. Right. Um, it helps me see the good in the harder situations. Um, you know, it also paradoxically gives me freedom. It gives me freedom to grieve. It gives me freedom to cry. It gives me freedom to be angry because I know I won't stay there. I know I can feel all the feels and, um, you know, and then I'll feel sunnier again. Right. And then I'll feel sad again. But, you know, it's it's not, you don't ever get there and stay there forever. It's up and down. And this, so do you say, do you, do you, say, you recommend to the people that, you know, that read the book as well is like you to practice happiness, like as a skill. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really like a muscle. Mm. Um, actually, here's one of my favorite things. So this is brain science. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's really 
I, I just love this. And that is this whole um, concept of neuroplasticity in our brains. Mm. It used to be believed that um, we kind of created all the patterns in our brains when we were very young, I think like three years old. But more recently, it's been uh, um, realized that that's not true. We continue to create new neuropathways in our brain, like right up till we die. So when we, when we persistently and carefully and thoughtfully focus more on the positive, we are creating, we are wiring our own brains to be happier brains. Okay. When we wallow in the negative, and again, I mean, I'm I'm all for a good wallow every once in a while. <laughs> Just don't stay there too long. We're then also wiring our brains to be more negative. And so what that means is in any in practical terms, in any given situation, you can see the positive and experience and feel the positive. Or you can see and experience and feel the negative. And when our brains are more wired to be negative, that's where we're going to go naturally. But when our brains are more wired for the positive, we're going to go to the positive more readily. So an example that I talk about in the book, which continues to be a real live example in my life. So a few years ago, I got a... um, a diagnosis uh, in my left eye of something called um, retinal neo neovascularization, which means <laughs> bleeding <laughs> in the retina, which is bad. Yeah, it's very bad, uh, and it was a shock to get this um, diagnosis. And what that means is, without treatment. The eye doctor told me I could lose total sight in my left eye mm. in a matter of months. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was a surprise. And here's what the treatment is. Every um, six to eight weeks, I have to go to the retinal specialist and get a needle stuck in my eye oh, wow. with a treatment. So when I initially got that diagnosis. I was up in Burlington and and it was about an hour's drive home to where I live outside of Montpelier. It was a gorgeous summer day in June, beautiful. And I kept trying to focus on positive. I was like trying to look at the beauty and and it's like, no, this is not going to work. This is not going to work today. Uh, This is really scary and upsetting. And so I spent a couple of days being um, definitely scared and uh, upset. But my happiness knowledge helped me right away because I also know we humans, um, we have sort of a natural level of our happiness. When good things happen, you know, our happiness goes way up. And when bad things happen, it goes way down. But then it kind of comes back. And I know that even the actor Christopher Reeve, who became a quadriplegic, was a happy man. 
not immediately, <laughs> you know, but after a period of adjustment. <clears throat> so I walked around practicing being blind <laughs> and saying to myself, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. I'll get there. Yeah. Um, so it did all work out. But what also happened was I wrote, I have a blog and I wrote about this on my blog and um, I just got an outpouring of uh, love and support from so many different friends. And um, also this medicine, it's very expensive. Uh, you know, there's only four retinal specialists in the whole state of Vermont. <laughs> His services are very expensive. So, but I had health insurance. So, and it was caught in time. Right. I did have some eye loss, uh, some vision loss. So there, I, I was able pretty quickly within a matter of a few days to find all this meaning in the experience. I mean, I was really touched by the love and felt enormous gratitude. Um, so cultivating happiness allows us to get back to those sunnier days, not to ignore it. I'm not ignoring it. Right. I, I see this doctor very frequently, <laughs> but, um, and I may yet lose the vision in that eye. I, yeah. I, I don't know, right. but nonetheless, um, I could still be a happy person. Right. Yeah. Wow. And do you say, do you talk about it also too, about, uh, that is, gratitude part of happiness a skill set or is that absolutely mutually okay all right yes gratitude um gratitude is perhaps the best gratitude and kindness are two of the best things that people can do hmm. to in rewire their brains and increase their own levels of happiness hmm. um so i have various happiness practices that I do on a daily basis. Um, and I do, um, I write down three things that I'm grateful for. I used to write down more, but then I learned, so there's always more to learn. I learned that um, it's important in this rewiring of the brain to take some time. So, Instead of saying, uh, you know, I'm grateful for blueberries, say, I might say, I'm really grateful that we've had enough rain and enough sun this year to really grow a good blueberry harvest, you know, to, to rewire that brain and really, you know, kind of ponder it and, and let it sink in. Um, kindness, having a very um, intentional kindness practice is is really good there in, in the book actually there are many many different ways to um practice happiness because we're all uh, unique individuals and different practices will appeal to different people but it is great to do it on a regular basis just like um you know you might go to the gym on a regular basis or practice yoga on a regular basis you know, I am um, old enough to know that when I stop practicing yoga, my body just, poof, I feel it right away. <laughs> you know, I have to get, you know, so okay, it's good to keep doing it. So let's talk a bit about, um, you know, your 
your your author hat for a second because we have a lot of like authors that like the that watch or listen and some people that are budding authors and stuff so to give us a little bit of a of, of how it went for you to decide specifically on because you've could you've could have written any types of you know, you know, books that, you you know, that could have been about this is like, why did you, how did it work for you to hone in on specifically this book and how was the writing process for you? Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a two track thing. Okay. Yes. I was very interested in writing a book. Um, at the same time, uh, I, uh, in 2013, I was first asked by the church that I go to, the Unitarian Church of Montpelier, to if I wanted to be um, a guest preacher one day and preach about happiness. And I said, why, yes, <laughs> because <laughs> I can preach about this all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, one thing led to another, and I have ended up um, giving many, many, sermons at, at different churches, largely in Vermont, but not entirely in Vermont, mm -hmm. um, on various aspects of uh, happiness and well-being, both individual and collective. So that was going on. And then I, at some point I realized that um, I had uh, a, a unique story to tell, um, a, neat, a unique uh, niche in the happiness book canon. Right. Because I um, came into the personal happiness world through the systems door, um, you know, there's only there's only four of us who can say we were co-founders of Gross National Happiness USA. Um, so there's only four of us who have that piece of the story. Then this hasn't come up yet, but um, I did try for a while as part of how can I best get this message out there. I did for about a year and a half or so, have um, a store, <laughs> the Happiness Paradigm Store and Experience, um, which was uh, wonderful, but um, not very financially successful. Uh, so I had that experience. And as well as, um, you know, I'd gotten a, a certificate in positive psychology. So there is in the happiness world, there's kind of the systems happiness movement on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's the personal happiness movement, and they don't actually overlap very much. I think they're starting to more, right. but they didn't. And I felt like I was one of the few people kind of standing in both places. So I realized I had a story to tell, and I started, I started one book, and, um, got pretty far into it and took it to a friend who is an editor. And she um, said, you know, the good news is you're a phenomenal writer. The bad news is, you know, you're writing about policy and you can't do that. You're not a policy wonk. I'm not. And you're writing about research and you're not a, an academic. <laughs> and she said, you have to tell more stories, tell more stories, tell more stories. Oh, yeah. So I uh, tried to rewrite. That set me back, honestly, for those of you <laughs> listening and watching who are authors. That set me back. 
because I liked what I was doing, actually. I liked the book I was writing, but um, I had reason, I really esteemed my friend's opinion. She knew what she was talking about. Um, so it just totally set me back. But eventually I tried it writing more stories. Um, but really I couldn't let go of the policy or the research because that's all really important to me. So mm -hmm. I took it back to my friend again and again, <laughs> I shut down and uh, that time I was crying and um, it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. So while that was happening, meanwhile, there is a church um, near Silver Lake State Park in Vermont uh, that is a summer only UU church and they don't have their own minister. So they asked me one year to do four different services I said, wait, you do know I'm not really a minister, right? And they said, yes, yes, but we want you. So I did four services. The next year, they asked me to do seven out of their eight services that summer. Mm -hmm. And it was halfway through that second summer that I said, oh, this is it. Ah. This is it. This is my book. Right. And... Um, which then changed the process of writing the sermon somewhat thinking that it wasn't, my audience wasn't going to be just the people sitting in front of me, but that it might be readers right. as well. Uh, and then they asked me back to do another five the next summer. Um, so then I took it, I just went to one publisher uh, because I, I, I know the people at Rootstock um, and I went to them and they said, yes, they would like to publish the book. But then I had another, it, it, it was got interesting after that, again, for the writers in the room. Um, so I was assigned an editor. Now I have spent my life writing and often writing, you know, like writing, um, press releases at common cause that, you know, my words got edited and edited by this vice president, you know, and by, I mean, I was used to having my writing completely rewritten by other people. And I was comfortable with that, but this was different, <laughs> different because these were my, these were my thoughts and my words. And I wasn't writing them for an organization. This was mine. Right. And so, but I knew, I knew, I was like, I know, I know, writers got to have an editor. Well, oh my gosh, I love my editor so much. <laughs> Amabel uh, Glass. I always have trouble pronouncing her last name. Amabel was great. I was so tentative and so nervous about working with her, but it turned out that um. I thought I could just take the sermons and slap them in the book and there you would have it. Right. But that really wasn't true. You know, what I could say in 20 minutes in a book, you know, Amabel would ask questions and I would need to flesh things out. I would need to answer her questions. Um, so all the sermons in the book, they're actually longer than the ones which I delivered. Uh, and also... Delivering a sermon orally, I can cite anybody I want to cite, which I always do. I mean, I always give credit where credit is due. Right. Um, 
But then when it <laughs> came time to put it together, it was like, oh, well, um, wait, where did that quotation come from? <laughs> and so a lot, a lot of work, a lot of work went into um, the end notes. And I uh, like to tell people, I think the book is worth, is worth every penny just for the end notes. <laughs> if there's a topic you're interested in, like kindness, just look at the end notes and see the resources there. I mean, they're tremendous resources. But also sermons allowed me to do what I really wanted to do, which was combine personal stories. So the book is full of personal stories because I think that's how people take in information best. Right. You know, they like stories. So it's full of personal stories, but it is also full of research um, to back up everything that I say. Mm. You know, it's not me saying we rewire our brains. You know, it's, it's other people who have actually done that research and have standing to say that. Um, and, uh, and then there are, I also ultimately bottom line for me, I want to inspire people to action. We're in trouble. Right. We're in trouble. Yeah. And, um, I want people to act, but right. I also want people to have good lives and happy right. lives yeah. and they can, we can, we can have good, happy, fun, joyful lives. And we can do our part, whatever it is, you know, whether it's fighting systemic racism, um, you know, or advocating for elephants. What, I mean, there's a lot of work. To, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and we can all do a better job of it. And we can all be happier. So I want to inspire people. And so, you know, the kind of the cool thing I realized with sermons when I go and stand in a pulpit and it's time for the sermon, <laughs> I better have something to say. <laughs> you know, everybody is looking at me like they want um, something. Yep. Now, I mean, they might not know what they want, but they might want to learn something. I mean, there's a reason that people come to church. They might want to learn something. They might want to be comforted. They might want to be inspired. They might want to feel a sense of belonging. They might want to be moved to tears, but they want something. As opposed to life in general, I think people don't like being preached at. <laughs> you know, we don't really like that. Um, so, but this is this is a, an exception to that rule. People don't like being preached at, except when that's exactly what they, what came, they for. came for. Yeah. So, a book. You know, I had friends who wanted me to come up with a title that was less um, preachy sounding, which I understand. Yeah. I understand. This is very secular. This is very non dogmatic. Right. Um, but um, but it is preaching. Right. It is preaching. So, yeah. and, and so you, so, so you would recommend though, for I just think to be off at what point do you recommend pulling in an editor, whether it be like a, a line editor or, or, or a copy editor to, to come into like when the book is finished or do you say like a few chapters in, do you say, Hey, should, what do you, what would you be your recommendation? 
Gosh, I think that depends on the writer in the book. Mm. Um, uh, you know, if you're, I mean, I, I have a friend who's been working on a book of short stories and he, um, he has not been a writer his whole life. Right. So he has brought in editing help all along the way right. to help him be a better writer, help him learn how to craft short stories and uh, help him learn how to do it. Um, and so people might want editing early on in the process um, for a, a comfort stage. Certainly, I mean, I don't know what would have happened with my my first iteration of the book. Uh, if I had just kept going without my friend's advice, maybe that would have worked. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, in, in, in the case of this book, I think it, it really was best to have an editor come in at the end after it was all written. Um, well, it was mostly all written. I did actually still have a couple of sermons to add at the end because that gave the, the, uh, you know, the overall picture of the whole book. Mm. Like one of the thing, one of the questions I had in going to the editor was, should I change the order? I mean, right. what order should these sermons be in? Well, you wouldn't, you, how could you answer a question like that if you didn't have all the pieces? Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. I think it depends. Right. And do you? But, but I will say. Thank God for an editor. And I'll tell one other story. Uh, a friend of my daughter's uh, published a book a few years ago. It's a fantastic, amazing book um, based on her experience as a nurse midwife in, in the Congo, working for Doctors Without Borders. But as I understand the story, so this book was e based on emails she wrote all through the um, process. And uh, so she came back and she had a publisher a major publisher that was interested in her, but wanted to assign an editor to her. She didn't want that. <laughs> she didn't want an editor. So she self-published. Yeah. And as I say, it is an amazing book, but it is repetitive and it could have been so much better. <laughs> and not only that, she could have had this great deal with the publisher. Right. Yeah. And I say to writers, <laughs> find an editor. <laughs> trust and who is good and right. who gets you and who gets your work and right. Amabel made it a much better book right okay good yeah. yeah and do you have any is there is there a sequel to this in, in the works at all because you must have more stories that you could you that you had to cut out or you stories that you thought of after the book was published um I do have more stories uh I'm, I'm amazed at how many stories. <laughs> uh, there's lots of stories. I have, I have two different ideas of where I could go with right. another book. One of them, I mean, I've really been wondering about the idea of a memoir because um, I wonder, you know, some people, there, as I said, there's so much work that needs to be done. And some, a lot of it is so hard. Right. Such hard work. And I see people doing such hard work. <coughs> and I get to make my job happiness. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> I'm interested in that. But I but I'm not interested in writing it. This is a vanity piece. 
I would only want to write it if there was value in it for readers as well. So I am thinking about that. And uh, there are are many, many, many stories which... um, which I've uh, some of which I've been putting in the blog, but I am interested in pulling together a, a different collection of stories that is not sermons because again, sermons is great but kind of limited me in certain ways. Right. But pulling together a collection of other pieces, um, you know what? Anyway, anyway, I can get this message out there. Have you ever, is there any, has there been any discussion um, either with your friends or just like in internal dialogue with yourself to think about, you know, maybe, you know, adjusting the, um, uh, the audience a bit? Like, have you ever thought about doing like a children's book type size of something like this or? I haven't thought about a children's book. That's kind of interesting. Um, In some of the, in some of the services that I lead. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I am asked to do a children's story. Um, I only once did I write that, that story myself. I usually find a picture book, Mm. Um, but the, those picture books are inspiring and they, they show me uh, that it can certainly be done in in a, a meaningful way. But, you know, I haven't ever tried to write specifically for a young audience. Right. Yeah. Okay. And do you, and so, because I thought you said, I remember listening last year that you had some other, um, other book ideas too, that you were working on as well. I don't think so. I thought you said something I, you know, about that like my, yeah. my very first book idea yeah. um, is long gone. So, uh, and when I was getting my master's in mediation, I wrote my uh, my capstone paper, which we were—I think it was supposed to be uh, like twenty-five pages, but mine was like seventy-five pages. <laughs> writing, writing, writing. Um, and I wrote that on suffering. Okay. I really fell in love with the topic of suffering, right. too, and uh, I thought that I thought that could be a good book within the kind of the mediation and conflict resolution world. But um, that's too far in, in the past for me. I don't think I'll go back to that. Okay. And- you know, I don't know. I, I think I uh, have read Elizabeth Gilbert talking about creativity. I love Elizabeth Gilbert's um, wisdom on creativity and would recommend her to any aspiring writer um, to you know, feel better about whatever it is that you're working on. Um, But she talked about kind of anything that sparks your interest, um, just diving into it and seeing where it goes. So uh, last week we actually were camping on Burton Island and I was just thinking what a strange concept it is, especially for the people who work there. Right. Because when you camp on Burton Island, it's like you're living there <laughs> for a couple of days, <laughs> for a week. But it's so it's this very kind of intimate community mm. that is constantly changing. Right. Every day, people come and people go, and there you have there's your community. So it's sort of timeless and not changing, and it's also sort of constantly changing. 
And for the first time in a long time, I had sort of a glimmer of, oh, maybe I'd like to write a piece of fiction based on Burton Island. Right. Uh, so, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, wow. That'd be fun. Yeah. And so, do you want to talk, do you, do you, is your workshops, are you still doing your workshops and wellness workshops? Well, I stopped because of the pandemic. Right. Um, I, and I don't know if I will pick them back up or okay. not. Yeah. It's almost still too early to tell. Right. Um, I have, um, throughout the pandemic, in a way, I've continued to run my workshops because I have, at the beginning of the pandemic, in the very early months, like March or April, right. um, I think many of us wondered, what can I do uh, to make it, a, what can I do to help? So I began offering free guided meditation sessions on Saturday morning and Tuesday evening. Oh, wow. And a few months ago, I stopped the Saturday morning one, but I am still doing that on Tuesday night uh, for so doing a guided meditation free to anybody who who wants to sign in. And if anybody, um, I see you, you have my blog page up there. I would be more than happy if anybody wants me to come, if they feel like their workplace needs it now more than ever and that they're comfortable bringing people together. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I would, I would love to come in and, and, and help people out that way. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're at the top of the hour now, Ginny, do you, so if people want to learn more and, and find your book, uh, happinessparadigm.com, is that the best place to, to find everything? Um, it, it could be happinessparadigm.com or they could go to the publisher, uh, which is Rootstock um, Publishing and, okay. uh, you know, look for my book on the, uh, on the books page. Okay. Yeah, there it is. And it click is. on that. Um, it is, the book is available. You could go to any independent bookstore in Vermont and order it. Um, it's also on Amazon, but of course, want to promote the independent bookstores. That's right. Here you can get it. Like you said, Rootstock Publishing, get it straight here. Um, also the uh, indiebound.org you'll be able to get it indiebound.org or um, you know I know Bear Pond Books has it in Montpelier and um, you know you could order it through any independent bookstore in the state right and also just to, to just to remark remark too this is uh, an award winning book you did win the uh, uh, the Human Relations Indie Book Awards yeah. I was very and, pleased about that I think that's yeah. a great award to win. Yeah. It fits with what I'm trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for mentioning that, Barney. Yeah, you're welcome. And so, thanks a lot, Jeannie. Uh, this has been great, and and congratulations on on the award. Congratulations on uh, your 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 first uh, uh, your first anniversary of your your publishing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, this is great. And and come back, you know, when you get on your second book. You know, when your, okay. your second book come out. So Okay. Well, I'm planning on taking a good chunk of the winter and going south. 
yeah. without my family yeah. to rate. Okay. You don't like you you don't like that. You don't like the snow then, huh? No, I like it, but only to a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> it's about six inches. That's as much as I can handle. <laughs> well, or January is as much as I can handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well thank you. You're helping to inspire me. You know, I think all writers we sometimes need a little encouragement. So this is oh, You're welcome. And, and, I gotta say, do I do like I do like the the flowers behind you? Are those paper or is that? They are. I yeah. made them with my granddaughter for our um, Thanksgiving centerpiece last year. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Yeah. It was. A, and do you, so? What do you do? A lot of like paper crafts or anything like that too? Or I do I? I um I've made paper. Mm -hmm. Um and I. I love making paper. It's so much fun. I really like it a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I I like to create art that is just for fun, yeah. you know, just to create it and it feels good making it. And, and it's not, good too. Uh, it's like you never get, you know, hung in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or anything. Like that. <laughs> and it's cool about like making paper. Do you like you, you do you like recycle like old uh, other things like? Yes, that was a big part of it. Um, the the watercolor um, work that I used to do. So I used to make earrings, primarily oh, wow. pins and jewelry. But in order to make them durable, uh, I would coat them with. Uh, an epoxy polymer okay. and that stuff is not good for the <laughs> environment and probably not good for me either but <laughs> i i loved making the, that jewelry and i maybe still would but i had to stop just my um my values i had to stop working with this material which i thought was so bad for mm -hmm. the environment so making paper was a way for me to do art in a more environmentally responsible way right. and uh, i uh, actually sp sponsored a workshop at the community center next door and had someone come in and show whoever wanted to show up that day but show us all how do we make paper out of paper which has been used for something else before Right. And it so it's all it's recycled. And then I would hang on to calendars and magazines and things um, with interesting pictures or words that I might then lay into the to the handmade paper. But uh, yes, I love making it. And here's something else I love about it. It's very tactile. You know, you work with it. It's mushy. It's got the consistency of like oatmeal. Yeah. So, you know, you're rubbing your hands around in this very colorful um, oatmeal. <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you do with the colors? How do you get like the different different colors? The in colors there? come from the, the paper that you use. Okay. All right. Okay. So, you know, I might get a brochure in the mail that has a lot of red in it. 
And I actually have different bins and I, and I will throw that into my red paper bin mm -hmm. or, you know, I'll have something that has a lot of yellow and that goes in the yellow bin. Uh, so then when I make the paper, if I want it to be yellow, I use paper that's already yellow that's been used for some other purpose. Right. Right. Oh, God, that's awesome. That's where I, comes from. We had, uh, I remember when, in, in, when I was in art school, we had to take uh, we, the, the paper we used, we had to cook the paper, you know, like cook the, scrape it up, put it in oh, the blender. Ooh, and then we had like a screen, like, you know, like your screen. And then you yeah. kind of had to, yeah, and swish it around, like, like painting for gold a bit. And then, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I worked with a screen too yeah. to squeeze out all the water. Yeah. That part yeah. too, very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Squeezing out the water. It's good. Yeah, see, it's good. Yeah, like good tactile therapy, you know, like you very said. Very much it's so. Good. Yeah. 